We used to do all the really technical stuff. And now that we're both kind of running companies, our day-to-day is a lot more of a blend between, you know, trying to do real technical work, but also trying to figure out how to run a team that's doing that yes. effectively. And, and honestly, bigger picture, like how to do that and not feel like, why the fuck did I do this? Because I actually really liked programming and now I... Uh, struggle to find the time to do that or yes. I'm giving away all that work to everybody else and there's nothing yes. left for me to do except bullshit that I hate that I feel guilty giving to anybody else and <laughs> how do I actually make this into something worth doing yeah you know <laughs> how do you design a company you want to work at <laughs> exactly yeah. I think that's honestly the common thread between basically every conversation that we've been trying to have on this podcast so far yeah no we've been on a 20-year quest and journey yeah. to answer that question. So the reason we wanted to talk to you, I think, is because at least from the outside, it feels like you've got it figured out pretty good compared to a lot of people. Like I remember when you guys were building Hey, from the outside anyways, it sounded like you were basically heads down building the first version of that basically by yourself with a lot of time and freedom to do that. And then I saw you just put out like the, I don't know if you spell it out, the MRSK or MRSK tool that you just built it seems like you kind of just got to go into the hole and work on that by yourself too and i feel like i just don't get the opportunity to do that as much anymore not without feeling that i'm letting other people down by not being sort of like available to inject you know whatever secret sauce is that i'm supposed to be bringing to the company into everything else you know yeah i think that is um <laughs> it's funny because i've been toying with the idea that we should do another book Mm-hmm. And the the next book would be on this topic exactly. I actually just this morning wrote up a bit of the intro, uh, the idea of minimalist management. Yes. The idea of pre-baking management solutions in the form of systems in such a way that you do not need the constant bespoke interventionist follow-up notion of management that so many people are wrapped up in like unless i am in all the pies all the time like nudging and directing and pushing and correcting everyone and following up like what are they doing how are they doing and so forth like the whole thing is just going to fall apart now i'm not saying that couldn't happen i think a lot of managers vastly overestimate the capacity they have to provide positive interventions into the lives of their employees. In fact, I think it's a delusion of grandeur. I think management is far more about removing the obstacles to do good work than it is to somehow mentor, lift up, or or bring to being the good work of others. Again, I'm not saying it can't happen, but it happens so much more on the positive side through osmosis, through role modeling, through setting a culture by making decisions and so forth, more than the actual like, oh, you're my pot of clay here. I can shape you and mold you into this beautiful thing. And it's me. I'm the one doing these things. I don't see that. And the reason in part why I don't see that is... I mean, we've tried many times. I think lots of people have tried. Many managers have have tried. And they have a tendency to ascribe perhaps the successes of that. Oh, look at this employee who really flourished to their interventions. And a little bit less the uh, failures of that. Yeah, that person just didn't fit in here. Uh, I mean, really sad. 
when the answer is probably that um, it's somewhere along the nature nurture line that as we're finding in um, in biology and so forth, like kind of a lot of a bunch of things actually come pre-programmed in form of a set of genes that are expressing themselves in a certain way. And um, you do these uh, twin studies and so forth and you realize, do you know what? The environment has a relatively limited impact on a bunch of different dimensions of life outcomes. And I think we should be so foolish to think that that's not true at work that most people show up with some work genes that are ready to be expressed. And yes, you can suppress them and you can distort them or twist them in certain ways by having broken environments and broken systems. But if you get that out of the way, it is largely up to them whether they're going to leave a mark, leave an imprint. It kind of relates to this notion of whether you should focus on in either employee development on your personal development, on your strengths or on your weaknesses. Can you actually correct someone's weaknesses? Now, when it comes to all sorts of dimensions of core competency, I don't believe that's true at all. I think you can correct sort of misconceptions, misunderstandings, lack of awareness around certain things, but that's around the edges, at least in my professional experience. What you can do, though, is someone shows a proclivity or a, a talent for someone, you can set that talent free. And then you can absolutely marvel of what's possible when talent is set free to pursue great work as its own reward in some sense and, and all these other things. So I guess the, the overarching thesis I have here with this notion of minimalist management is that managers have a tendency to vastly overestimate their capacity to affect the productivity and the outcome of the people who work for them, and that they should focus the majority of that energy on just making sure that they're not the ones getting in the way, rather than the ones acting as the pusher and, and really bringing someone forth. That is taking far too much credit for the talents of other people. So when you talk about like trying to remove obstacles and make sure that people just sort of have the space to do like their best work. Doesn't that still like take work on your side though? Like how do you prevent your plate from just getting filled with removing obstacles to getting the work done from other people? And I have some like ideas in my head of what I'm thinking of those things being, but I'm curious to hear like what types of things you see those as being in your position at Basecamp or at 37 Signals now, I guess. It, it, that's a good point of clarification. When I talk about removing obstacles, I'm not talking about removing the challenges of the day-to-day -day work. I'm talking about removing the obstacles of sort of the systemic um, paths that are possible, about paving the road so that someone can keep going on it, right? Like I'm not sort of like, oh, a deer ran across the road. Yeah, that's a thing that's gonna happen. I'm not gonna be there to get every deer out of the way. Here's a nicely paved road. Maybe we can have a little bit of higher guardrails or something so that in general, deers don't just uh, run across the highway, or at least we can have a sign. Hey, deers known to cross here, be on your guard. Um, so this is why this focus is so much on setting up um, some minimalist systems. I'll give you an example. A lot of managers think that a key part of the Job description is to gather status reports, evaluate status reports, and summarize status reports, right? The whole 
reporting change. I mean, it's literally in the in the word for for a lot of people. Oh, I have so and so many reports because these people they report back to me. And now you have this sort of funnel, right? Oh, I have seven reports. That's seven individuals reporting up to one individual. You have sort of a pyramid here, right? That to me is a blocker, right? There's one individual here who's now getting all this inbound information from seven people. When, what is that information to be used for? Why is it being gathered in this individual's? Is that because that person has all the answers to the seven individuals reporting into this person? I don't think so. Is it because they possess some unique skills of summarization that like uh, individuals can't do on the note? I don't think so either. So what if this whole reporting change is simply just a legacy concept from the days before technology, <laughs> from the days before we could record our reports, our updates on status, where we are with the work we're currently on and distribute it neatly amongst the rest of the company, the needs to knows, that's what we're trying to do. So instead, for example, a lot of companies have daily standups. There at least there's a little bit of peer interaction going on, which I can sympathize with the idea of. A lot of other companies simply have managers just knocks on everyone's door. Hey, what have you been up to? What, what have you been doing, right? We've replaced that entire machinery with a set of automated questions in Basecamp. So in Basecamp, we ask on Mondays, what are you gonna work on this week? It's free, it's a text field. It's not like a set of checkboxes. You deliver a narrative on what you're gonna work on. And then at the end of every day, we ask, what did you work on today? Mm -hmm. So that's one way of taking a information hierarchy that's reliant on a single manager following up and doing all the editing of that work and putting it over into a system that can sort of run on its own. Like if that manager is say out for three weeks, right? What do you what do you do in a reporting structure? Well, the reporting just stops basically, yeah. right? It just stops. It just doesn't happen for three weeks. That seems like poor. And also, again, this 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 is where, as a manager, I think we we're going to overestimate how much value are we adding to that information harness? How much value are we supercharging the channels of communication here? Are we really so good at like, oh, I just learned something from this person that this other person needs to know. Now I can be the conduit for that information. Also, in my opinion, bullshit. And then on top of that, I just find the whole one-by-one -one reporting, knock-knock on the door system to be extremely inefficient. It's a very high bandwidth way of exchanging nominal bits of information. Like it's, it's too much pipe for too little stuff, at least on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you see value in the sort of other pieces of management, like checking in with how people are doing? Like, are you all right? You have family stuff going on? Are you happy with your career? Like if you kept doing this for another year, would that be good or would you be bored? That sort of like softer stuff that's not less about the work and more about the person. Yeah, I think th this is great because this gets into the more uh, spicy part of my analysis. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it is an even more profound delusion that managers are equipped to be part-time psychologists, part-time life coaches, part-time buddies, even, that is undermined by the sheer, this is one of these other words I have mixed emotions with, power dynamics of the relationship. If I have the power to 
fire you, there are very real limits to how much of a buddy we can be. Buddy relationships, they don't naturally <laughs> grow in unequal power dynamics, in my opinion. But let's put that one aside and let's start with the other two because I think there's a more pertinent. This idea that most people who serve in management, and let's just confine our industry here to technology because that's the only one I really know a lot about. Maybe it's different at um, a shipyard. I highly doubt it. Um, and I think actually maybe the shipyard comparison will be apt in a second. So let's return to that. But this idea that these managers are uniquely qualified to be excellent life coaches or psychologists or otherwise equipped to help sovereign, smart, presumably, individuals to navigate their life, I think is patronizing beyond belief. And I think it sets up a really twisted dynamic in terms of what is the relationship we have at work. How much of life should happen at work? How much of your intellectual, emotional being should you bring to work? Do you know what? I, I used to be more in, in that bucket. So this is why I empathize so much with the, with the question. I used to believe, no, no, we can really do the things. And I'm not saying that there's no opportunity here for heartfelt conversations that occasionally can unlock people in these ways. But I, there's, there's some assumptions in the premise that this is a, a good structure, that this is the justification for management that I find um, just increasingly undermining of, of what the relationship is. And, and I mean, it's no secret that at 37 Signals, we've been on a bit of a, at times, public mission to shrink the um, relationship or shrink the amount of person we ask someone to bring at work. Um, I've had a tortured relationship with the notion of bringing your whole self to work, which was sort of this big buzzwordy paradigm that operated for quite a long time, right? That like the more of ourselves we bring of our insecurities and our flaws and psychological beings, the more of that we bring to work, the better it is because, I don't know, dot, dot, dot. What is that? No step two, step three is, is profit in terms of uh, work satisfaction or all these other things. And I think it's just undermined by the fact that in many ways and in many views of this, people have never been more miserable. Like the world right now, both in technology and information technology more broadly, is full of miserable people who are not happy. So whatever it is that we're doing under the regime of bring your whole self to work, is not working very well. Like at least on a grand macro level, this is one of the reasons I was so, and am so fond of uh, David Graeber's analysis of bullshit jobs. This notion that there are so many folks in the world who just don't believe that what they come to work to do kind of has any meaning or make any difference. Anyway, that's sort of a tangent. The main point here being that I, I don't think that managers are qualified to this. And then you can say, as I've also often heard, well, it's just because you're not training your managers, right? Like your managers also require training. And if they go to the right uh, two-day seminars, <laughs> they'll be equipped to do this. I mean, what the, what? No, I, I don't think so. Again, this is why I like podcasting, right? If this was a tweet, I could just have like, 
set torch to a whole discourse <laughs> here on management. Oh, you say like managers can't do anything to help their employees or um, blah, 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 right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying as a general job description of like what is the manager, what should the manager be? Should that person take on the role of part-time psychologist, part-time life coach, part-time all these other things? And I go like, do you know what? I don't think so. Now, you also mentioned the third point, which is career progression. That one I do think is important. And again, I also think you can replace very much of that with a system. So one of the ways that we've done this is in the Basecamp handbook, we have for all the major branches of competency at the company, we've broken down what career progression looks like, all the way from junior programmer to programmer to senior programmer to lead programmer to principal programmer. And those things are broken down in kind of like an extractive sense where we went like, who are the people who are most senior at our company? What kind of qualities do they encompass? What kind of accomplishments do they encompass? What can they do? What's the scope of the work that they can do? And we can break that down into about five, six points per ladder step. Now, there's a million other reasons and it's not like it's a checklist. You get an automatic promotion at the company if you kind of check these things off. But it does actually give a lot of guidance, particularly to people who join the company. What does the next step look? I'm a senior programmer. What does it look like to be a lead programmer? What kind of projects do I need to take on? What kind of steps do I need to reach for? What kind of impact do I have to have on uh, the organization to read? And again, Having someone to occasionally help you navigate what does that look like in your situation with your projects and so on and so forth, totally fine. Is that a conversation you should be having every week? Come on. Every month? No. Every six months? Maybe. Once a year? It definitely. So there's some space in there where, where that can be. Um, and that's also where I think this whole discussion about manager is not like one zero. Replace all management by automated systems that'll just manage themselves or don't have systems and everything is a bespoke interaction between manager and person. No, it is about going, how can we have less management? Minimalist or minimal management. So that you, Adam, or Ben, or me, or anyone else who's in the position of like, as I would like to say, be a reluctant manager, or as we framed it more positively, being a moonlight manager, that management is one facet of what I do occasionally. Um, you do less of it when it matters, and then you don't have to feel so a, guilty about it. You get to spend more of your time on the things you would like to do. I think this is triply true if you are an owner operator of a company. I mean, I've been an owner-operator now for 20 years. No way I could have stuck around here for 20 years not doing mostly the things I want to do. That's what I would love to hear more about. And like that's, that's really the core reason that we wanted to chat with you is because our perception was like, it seems like you are doing a lot of things that you like and are having fun doing them. And so I would love to almost zoom in on that and be like, and hear more about your days and like what percentage you're spending on various things. And like, is it working? Like, are you, are you enjoying it most of the time? I think on a macro level, if I look at 20 years, I'd say I definitely enjoyed the majority of those 20 years. Did I enjoy it all of the time? Absolutely not. If you have that expectation that you can actually be responsible for a company that has employees and you think you're going to enjoy it all the time, you're delusional and you should yeah. just stop right now. But 
I mean, the bar should be quite high. Like, I don't know what the exact number is, but I'd like to believe that like 80% of the time I enjoy what I'm doing. That doesn't mean I'm programming 80% of the time. I, it, I think it is easier to be a owner operator if you do enjoy multiple aspects of running the business. One being, for example, product, it could be, whether that's programming or design or whatever. I happen to also really enjoy writing, which aligns very well with sort of setting culture internally and doing marketing externally. I also happen to sort of enjoy business in the sense of like, oh, does uh, income exceed expenses? What are we spending our money on? Like the bean counting, so to speak? Like I occasionally do actually enjoy that. That's one of the reasons why this whole cloud exit has been so invigorating for me. I think as an owner operator, especially when you're spending your own money and not investors' money, like you have skin in the game in a way that makes saving money feel like a thrill in a way that it probably doesn't to a lot of other people. Oh, I've saved some other person a bunch of money. Okay, fine, in some abstract notion. When I go like, oh, we're gonna save one and a half million dollars a year on our cloud exit. Like, I can do the math because I have the conversion rate. Like, that's that much more money to me every year. Not that that truly matters at this point. We've been doing it for so long and so profitably that that, not like my life is gonna change because of those things, but at least there's like, direct connection that really makes it feel different. Mm -hmm. Now, to that broader point though, you, you mentioned two examples. One was creating hay, which we spent about two years doing. And I spent a good, let's say nine months of those two years, very heavily, almost exclusively occupied just doing that. Like the foundational architecture, and not just the architecture, because the architecture is often such a cop-out where it just means like drawing diagrams. Sure. Like that's not what I mean. I mean architecture in terms of like putting the structural elements of the technical implementation in place. Like writing all the freaking controllers and the models and the, and the whatever. Before we sort of brought a bigger team in, we always start any new product development, usually, or historically we've started, we actually have one exemption now. But historically we've started every new product development, Jason and I go like, all right, we're gonna, until we figure out what it actually is that we want, it doesn't help to have a ton of people. In fact, it hurts. Yeah. So the fewer people we are right at the beginning gives us a lot of leeway to, to try different things and it's not expensive to change our mind and all this other stuff. But anyway, for Hay, that was something I did for, for about nine of those months, I think, before we really started bulking up the project and it turned into something else. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Not just because of like it's fun to work on new products, which it totally is, but also because I love building my own tools. Yeah. And we had to build a bunch of tools to be able to do that. Um, Rails saw like just a flood of extractions coming into the next releases and the releases as we were building Hay because I was building all these tools as we were building Hay. That's probably one of my favorite things. It's not even so much, well, uh, let me, it's 50-50. I like making new products, but I like, most making new products when I also get to make new tools. Yeah. Like that is really the integrated challenge that's so fun. And then most recently this thing with Maersk, it was more of a, even more of a condensed like espresso form of it because we late last year had this talk like, oh, we have this vague notion. We'd like to get out of big tech. That was actually the starting point. It wasn't cloud specifically. We'd like to get off big tech in general. Like, I don't want to rely on Google or Apple or Amazon or any of these other. I think there's a lot of problems around this. I've testified about antitrust and so forth. Like, can we just 
get off big tech, right? If nothing else, just for the exercise. And then that quickly turned into like, what is our biggest dependency on big tech? Well, it's the $3.2 million we spend every year with AWS. And then we, we tried a bunch of different things and through a bunch of roundabout ways, ended up with like, do you know what? We got to do this ourselves. If we want to get off the tools we're looking at, Kubernetes and all this other stuff, ah, it doesn't feel quite right to our size. And I just, it was interesting. So I had had this lull period, and this is a good perhaps way to bracket this is, I don't jump straight from like nine months working on Hey to like, all right, we're going to work on the next product right away. And like, I just have a continuous phase of like deep down in product development to the exclusion of everything else. No, it's a quite a hilly path. So I have these peaks and then I have this troughs. We're like, okay, Hey is now in a good place. A bunch of other people know how to make it better and add features to it. Like I'm not really needed here anymore. So then I sort of pull back. And during one of those pullbacks, I, I did what I occasionally do. I'm like, I want to learn some new technology. I want to get better at technology I just vaguely know. And I ended up uh, really diving deep on Docker. So amazingly as it sounds, like I'd used Docker over the years, but I never like used, used Docker, like really gotten into the thick of it. And I had just done that as an exploration for another idea actually that um, we'll hopefully premiere and talk about it at some later stage this year. But that learning, that time spending, I spent like, I don't know, a month or something, like really getting into it, resulted in when we looked at this problem, we want to get off big tech, we want to get off cloud, we want to get some of our $3.2 million a year we're blowing on AWS back. And we looked at the alternatives, we looked at Kubernetes, and I went like, do you know what? No, there's a simpler way to do this. I have a hunch that we can essentially use something like Capistrano which is actually this deployment tool that we originally created at 37 Signals back in 2005 when we needed first to deploy to multiple uh, servers at the same time. That was still around, that we're still using to this day for Basecamp. We can combine that with the advances in cloud technology, da 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 An incredibly intensive two months from January, this is, it's so recent I have the exact dates, from January 12th until uh, about the middle of March, I was just obsessed with getting that idea out of my head and getting the entire operations team at the company and, and some of the infrastructure team onto like, do you know what, we can fulfill this mission. Not only can we use this tool to get out of the cloud, we can get out of the cloud in record time. We can kill that $3.2 million budget or at least cut off two thirds of it in six months if we sprint. So, that's kind of like how these goes, which gives you some indication of like, what does your average day look yeah. like? It's actually difficult to explain because if I'm in the middle of this Maersk thing, for example, it looks like eight hours a day, just on this, fully focused in my head. Don't bother me with anyone else. I want a completely clear calendar. Any, any line items on a calendar is like a bigger than a paper cut, like a a cardboard cut or something else where it really draws some serious blood. And then there are these, stretches in between that where like I'm in that sort of right now we have started on some new things but hasn't fully rammed up yet where I'm like a lot more chill and like oh yeah let's do some podcasts okay so <laughs> that's kind of what I was what I was going to ask honestly is when you're deep on something like Maersk or when you were working on hey and maybe it was a bit more intense on Maersk than it wasn't on hey maybe by the sounds of it but you can tell me if I'm right there or not like what other stuff are you responsible for like from the perspective of other people at the company like what are people sort of counting on you for and how do you make sure that that's still 
fits in. Like I was going to ask is working heads down on Maersk like three hours a day and then still kind of doing some other stuff. Cause three hours is still a lot of time. If you're just like horse blinders on super hyper-focused, but you're saying eight, you know? So does that mean that like something's suffering during that time? And if not, like what have you done to make sure that it's not? Yeah, that's a great question. When it's really high intensity, as it was with Maersk, it is closer to the eight than the three. Now it's not actually eight because I don't think Maybe like it's eight one day out of the week and the other days, if they're really banging, they're like five or six. Like five or six is an incredible day for me if I can get five or six hours of quality time with it. But it is rather exclusive, I will say that. And the reason why it is, is that we try to think about, as we wrote in, oh, verse, it doesn't have to be crazy at work or it's rework. I think it was, it doesn't have to be crazy at work. Jason and I try to think of the business as a product in itself. How do we shape this product in such a way that it's easy to use, it's self-explanatory, it doesn't require you to call support <laughs> every <laughs> five minutes? Um, if you just want to use that product in the current state it's in, you should not need our assistance. Now, this is where, I don't know, it gets a little meta, but when Jason and I have the most um, impact on management at the company is when we're changing the product of the company, when we're changing the systems, sure. when we're putting something new in place. But when we're not putting something new in place, our presence should be and is, to a large extent, optional. The train can keep going in the same direction that we've laid out tracks for it to go for a long time without us constantly having to do micro adjustments at the wheel or at the speed. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say like, what do, you, what do you consider to be like just the company doing what the company does? And what do you consider to be like changes? Like for example, coming up with an idea for a new feature to add in Basecamp and deciding that it's a good idea to include in Basecamp, like is that just part of like the company operating system or is that something that generally you or Jason or someone else who's, you know, making leadership decisions at the company is wants to have influence on. Like if you're just going to step away and leave the team, are new features going to show up in Basecamp by the time you come back? Or is it just like, let's just keep the factory running, keep the floors swept, make sure the machines aren't getting jammed. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I do know. And, and I think um, two answers sort of in part. One answer is that these days, and also for a while before that, Jason has had... I don't know, a sidekick, if you will, on product management. Someone who can distill, we use ShapeUp, and in ShapeUp mm -hmm. uh, methodology here, it's pitches. Who can prepare a pitch? That is, distill a fuzzy idea for a feature into a one-pager that explains what it is and what the trade-offs are, not how it's implemented, but like the, the shape and the outline of it. Um, so Jason has someone to help with that, but even so, I mean, he still does the majority of the product management at that level. But let's even take that example. This is only something we do once every two months. Once every two yeah. months. But is it once every two months though? Because don't, don't you have to like kind of fill those two months in a way with sort of noodling on like what it is you're gonna commit to for the next two months? It's not like it's, not like it's one day between the two months that it... No, 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 no. You're, you're right in the sense that like, it's once every two months that we decide and communicate. Like here are the things we would like to work on. Um, but there's some prep work that goes in before that. And that's where it is quite helpful for Jason. And even when he is in main product mode to have someone, Brian, 
is our head of, uh, I think we call it product strategy. Uh, I forget, but product management as a as a function um, to have someone on board to yeah. to help push that forward. But that's a good example. Like even if either me or Jason are involved in that sort of final decision making, like what are we actually going to do these next two months? What are we going to do next cycle? Right? Yeah, that's a very modest amount of time invested. Like for example, I give my input most of the times on most of the things that we're considering doing. And I give my input in a, in a window that's three days. I'll see the pitches, and then we have three days to sort of noodle on them and give feedback and like whatever, and then we decide, right? And then like my input into that system, that is what should we be working on, what should the shape of these things be, is an investment of three days, and it's not even full time for three days. I spent maybe four hours in total over those four, that's even yeah. high set, two hours is probably more reasonable, every two months. Like that's a pretty modest amount of stuff. Like, for example, during um, hay production, which was a much longer period, right? I was still involved in that. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, I can every two months, can I take a couple of hours to do this? Yeah, I, I can. So it's it's about versus, for example, let's contrast this to something, to, to the feature factory setup that is Scrum. Yeah. Where every two weeks you're trying to manage the backlog with all your little cute points and all the other bullshit that goes into that process, right? And you're dealing with these half-finished things because like nothing of material value can actually get done in two weeks, so you're constantly biting things off into little bit of bites, right? Versus at least the way we work with ShapeUp is like, what happens in a cycle ships? Like we don't do the carryover shit or that's at least exceptionally rare. It has happened, but it's very rare. So that provides you a sense of uh, bounded autonomy is a term I like for this, which is, do you know what? Once every two months, um, Jason and I can give the input that we give to this process of what we're going to work on next. And then we can essentially step off and go like, hey, here's now, whatever, four teams working on these things that we set up, and some of them we have an appetite of two weeks off, and some of them have four weeks, some of them have six weeks, whatever. To a large degree, we can back off and say like, okay, do it. Make it happen. You make all the decisions, the, the trade-offs, the cut of scope, and, and so forth. And I mean, I don't actually believe this, but as a way to communicate this idea of bounded uh, contact, if you totally fuck it up, like you mess up all the features or whatever and like they're the wrong trade-offs and the quality's not right or whatever a manager could imagine would happen if they stepped out of the room for too long. In six weeks, you will know the truth. You will see what ships and you will have a chance to review the quality of what ships. And if what ships is good, all you have to do is clap, mm -hmm. celebrate, yee-hee! If it, what ships is not so good, here's an opportunity to correct, right? And of course, this is, this is not a singular game. We've, we've been playing this game, we've played, I don't know, six rounds a year for whatever. We've been running the six-week thing for probably 10 years now. That's 60 rounds of the game. I'm sure there were more calibration perhaps in the beginning. By round 60, eh, pretty well-tuned system. So that is to say, that's another form of these systems. The systems rely on a very small amount of executive lubrication, if you will, right? Like you think of this as an engine, like how much oil does it consume over 100,000 miles? A better engine is one that does not consume too much oil and the oil is like executive bandwidth and so on. And beyond that point, I think this is simply a better way to work, period. Not even about 
Jason or I, I mean, maybe this is self-rationalization, but I find that people left to quote unquote their own devices with a clear vision of where they're supposed to go, with the power and autonomy to choose how to get there, holy shit, they step up to the plate. Like they live up to your expectations. It's a little intimidated, intimidating for some people at first, especially people who've been used to work at a feature factory where they get these little two-week bites to nibble on, and then suddenly they have the responsibility of an entire feature that's gonna ship yeah. in Basecamp. Like that's what they're on the hook for. But I find that the vast majority of everyone who's ever worked at our company have very quickly not just coped with that, but embraced it and found it to be one of the most consequential reasons for why they're still at the company for a long time or whatever. That's something that I feel like I I don't do and I think it's out of fear sometimes. It's just like we often have like internal conversations where it's like, should we just throw like person X and person Y into the deep end on this and just like see what happens? Like. I'm scared to do it because I think they're going to be uncomfortable with it. And I think they're going to feel like this is too much responsibility. That's the feature. Being uncomfortable is a reflection of growth. When you're not quite sure whether you could do it or you can dive there, or you can go that far. That is where flow happens. That is the greatest gift you can give to anyone working in a product organization. The path to flow. When you're like just reaching beyond like what you're capable of, where mm -hmm. there's some uncertainty as to whether you can make it, that's when the good stuff happens. That's when professional growth happens. That's when someone goes from like, wow, I didn't know they had that in them so quickly. And I think this is so rewarding on both sides of the fence. It's rewarding as a manager to see someone really step up. And it's obviously rewarding for the individual who's now far more capable because they did. And what's the worst thing that's gonna happen? At least in our regime, the worst thing that happens is that someone goes off a little bit in the deep end and like they can't kind of find their way or whatever. So they waste a few weeks. Do you know how much they'll learn from that? From like just, paddling around there, yeah. they'll learn a shit ton, even if there's one failed project there, right? Now, it may also so be happen, as apropos the conversation we started with, that someone continuously cannot find their way, right? The end is too deep. They, they can't find their bearings, even given multiple chances and encouragement and mentoring, which by the way is its own system we can also talk about for more senior people. And that's your answer too. Again, I do not believe that you can make someone swim. You cannot move their legs. You cannot move their arms. They have to move their own arms and their own legs. You can kind of give them some guidance. You can cheer them on from the sidelines. You can do all these other things, but they have to swim. Yeah, you have to give them the water, which maybe I don't do enough, honestly. <laughs> and that's part of that thing where we're trying often, I think, too hard to make sure no one is ever uncomfortable. That is a great injustice. And there's a wonderful book, I don't know if both of your parents, but there's a wonderful book called The Self-Driven Child, mm -hmm. which goes into this whole notion around parenting and it focuses on homework in particular, for example. Can a parent actually do much to make the child do their homework if they don't want? No, they can't. Like study after study just shows that does not work. That's a short-term thing. You can try with threats, you can try with all sorts of other things. If the kid does not intrinsically want to do their homework, it's gonna be shit and they're not gonna learn anything. So you simply have to rely on intrinsic uh, motivation and accept that you have limited powers. Even in this case with children where you're like, this is the, 
most dear to any parent I know. Uh, this is the, the domain that matters most where I have the highest hopes and aspirations for this small human, right? Even in that case, you, you don't actually have the power to force anyone to, to do something. And we have all these like, you, you can lead the water to to the, or you can lead the water. You lead the horse to the water, but can't make the water drink. There's all these sayings, and the culture knows this. The culture knows that it's very difficult to actually force anyone to do anything. You may be able to force someone to, I don't know, dig a ditch. That's possible. If you point a gun at them, they will probably <laughs> adequately dig a ditch for as long as it takes to dig that ditch, right? Can you make someone do creative work? No. No, you can't. Even a a gun would not be a successful way of doing that for a long period of time. So um, I think we need to get past this notion of coddling, where we're trying so hard to make sure no one's ever uncomfortable at any moment in their career or otherwise. Again, this is bounded coddling, right? Like you should never be uncomfortable because of sexual harassment or any of these other, that's a completely different category of things. We're talking about sort of the work, right? Mm -hmm. You need to be challenged by the work. You need to sometimes be a little nervous. Like, I don't know if I can do it. And the honest answer is, yeah, I don't quite know either. Like, I encourage you. I, I would like to see that happen. But it's it's going to make you grow because we're not sure. And again, we're, yeah. it's not like you're on a one-off here. There's not like one jump at the, at the whatever. You're going to get multiple jumps to do it. But it's also fair to accept upfront and be honest with everyone. In the end, if you have high standards for your specific organization, not everyone will become a great swimmer. Which is also one of those things I think yeah. lots of managers have a very difficult time accepting, right? That even with the best efforts on your hiring process and whatever, no organization to the known universe has a 100% batting ratio on hiring. It just does not happen. So accept up front that like, yeah, yeah, some people won't be able to make it. Hopefully you have a process in hiring that's good enough that the majority of people will make it because you've actually tested their swimming skills in a realistic pool and so on and so forth before they got on board and, yeah. and all these other things. It's eye-opening to just like think about like, if you don't do that, I, it feels like you never really know if the people on the team are capable or not capable. You know what I mean? So you just live in this perpetual state of just anxiety and uncertainty and not totally being like happy with the situation. Whereas if you just kind of let people try, then you can just find out if like all this worrying that people aren't going to live up to necessarily like the standards that you need them to live up to, like it goes away because they either prove that they can or they prove that they can't. But even then it's like so hard as a leader to not just, and you've just alluded to this, but always just question like, did I fuck up? Is it my fucking fault that even though I gave this, like, okay, I gave them full ownership and a ton of responsibility, but maybe I didn't give them enough information or I didn't point them enough in the right direction or there was some key thing that I forgot to say. That's the reason it went down in this wrong direction or whatever. You know what I mean? It's I do. I do. Torture. And, and I think that is actually, <laughs> what you're describing there is probably the number one cause for why uh, working manager or, or um, player coaches that we have at 37 Signals decide to stop being coaches or stop being whatever. They do not want to deal with the potential guilt that lies in that question and that assessment. That is a requirement of being a good manager. Absolutely. You have to mm -hmm. accept that. And I think it is easier once you've gone through one process where someone panned out. Now, you could say like your new manager... If all 
the first five reports you have. They all flame out spectacularly, despite the fact that you thought you'd vetted them well and so forth. Okay, fair enough. Look at yourself and go like, what's wrong with me? Like, how, how am I fucking this up? If that's not the ratio you have, if you have, for example, like, I'll hire four people, one of them does not work out, the other three do. You know what? That's just what it is. That is just what it is. That is not a sort of pedestaling of yourself. It's not saying, like, I'm totally perfect. It is just saying, like, you know what? I can learn things. I can become better at things. And I should introspect and reflect and so forth. But I'm not going to wallow in this idea that, like, I can't make everyone swim. No coach has that. Even the best coaches in the world. You can look at the top basketball teams or football teams or whatever. You'll hear some players somewhere saying, that was the worst coach I ever had. Like, no one has a 100% approval rating. And holding yourself to a bar of 100% approval rating is just bad shit. And it leads to all sorts of twisted dynamics where you become the cuddling manager. And that always has a cost and a consequence, right? Especially when it comes to, let's say, again, say you have, you've hired four people for your swimming team, right? Three of them, wow, they're doing great. But like, this is a baton game. The three, they're going to swim, and they got to give the baton to the next swimmer. Those three swimmers who are doing well and can pass the baton, when they have to pass the baton to the fourth person who can't find their way, the whole team suffers. So by trying to be overly kind to the fourth person, you're kind of screwing the other three. And this is one of those realities that it's a touchy subject because a lot of peers don't want to be peer judgers, right? Like they don't want to judge each other. So this is one of the reasons why 360 reviews are such bullshit and never work because you can never get honest feedback amongst peers because like what's in it for them? Um, no one wants to be seen as the person who rats out. But it is an absolute crucial part of work satisfaction. Do I work with others who I respect and preferably even look up to or at the very least I can count on to get the work done, that is, I think, probably more important than do I work with a manager that I can get on with? Do I have peers that I can trust and have my back and so forth, right? The fastest way to screw over any department is to leave people in it who shouldn't be there. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. No one can keep it hidden or secret that someone is like not doing well, right? And it's just going to drag the whole thing down. And yeah, it gets easier. That's the only thing I can say. I remember the first time I fired someone at 37 Signals, I wanted to throw up, right? Like, it's just, it's such a unnatural, I think, for most people who are not born psychopaths. I guess. Such a <laughs> gut-wrenching experience to feel like I have sort of the power to influence someone else's life in this extremely consequential way. Like, if you're not at least a little bit uncomfortable with that, uh, I, I, I'd question some hallmarks of your humanity. But that's simply something you have to develop a discipline to become comfortable with. Although you're going to spoil the rest you're going to spoil the rest if you do not grow comfortable yeah. with that. And um, how did we even get onto that? I forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't even know, but it's touching on a lot of things that I think are, are worth talking about. One thing that you, you mentioned a bunch of times was systems, and you've given a lot of examples of systems. From the outside, there are a lot of systems that I think people can see at 37 Signals. Like if you have like a public company handbook, you've talked about how you guys use ShapeUp, how you use the check-ins and stuff in Basecamp. Are there any systems 
worth talking about that people don't know about from the outside? Like, for example, like something I'm always wondering in our company is like, do we need to like document opinions and decisions on things more? Like what, what happens when someone comes to you with a question? I'm not really sure how to handle this. Like, what's our stance on this? Like, where does that go? So it doesn't get asked again, or does that not happen? And why do you think it doesn't happen? You know? Yeah. Good question. I think maybe on the like, what's our stance on this? If it pertains to values and culture, we kind of get most of those answers for free because Jason and I are so prolific in sharing publicly where we stand on perhaps even too many things. Maybe we'd be better off if we shared less of our standing on some things. Otherwise, I would say I would encourage to flip it around that the company culture, the sum of like, what do we feel about these things should be a byproduct of the decisions that we make and that you see. And I will say that it does help to some degree to have all those decisions documented in writing. Now, as a remote company, I find that very easy because the vast majority of all our communication is already in writing. If that's not where you are, like you do a lot of decisions in either in person or in Zoom meetings or something, you might have a little bit more of a challenge in terms of communicating those things, but it's well worth doing. It's actually one of the reasons why I'm usually fairly religious about answering our two questions, like what are you going to work on this week and what did you work on today? Because I use those as prompt opportunities to explain my thinking, explain my decision-making on on certain Mm -hmm. things. And that is kind of part of that food coloring that's... Just kind of permeates. Exactly, it permeates. Yeah. Because ultimately, if, if you have a, a company where everyone feels like, oh, I've never seen this problem before, I need to ask Adam or Ben or David how to solve it, that's not a very resilient company. Because like, hey, Adam, what if you're not there? Do we just yeah. stop? Do we not move forward? What do we, do we not do anything, right? Like the vast majority of decisions yeah. should actually just be taken by the people with the best information that they have. It may not be the right decision ultimately, and you can correct, but it's just far better in that instance, in my opinion, to have a bias for action, a bias for decision making, and then have a culture of being able to revert the occasional off decision. And then you leave like the very large questions like, should we work on a new product or should we not work on a new product? Yeah, that's an executive level decision that presumably you're not going to make that often. And when you do, it's going to be you. So I can give like a concrete example that I think you'll understand, but maybe is unique to the type of business that we run. And So a lot of our day-to-day business activities revolves around like maintaining our open source projects, right? Because that's kind of what we kind of do. So there's a lot of like, what do you think of this pull request? Should we merge this pull request? Do you think it's good as is type of thing where if someone just merges it and they're not sure, now you have like semantic versioning fucking concerns to worry about. And like, if you revert it or like, is should I have a process right before we cut a release where I review every single thing that made it in? And then I have to be like, oh, five weeks ago, this was merged and I didn't know about it and I disagree with it. And now I have to pull it out. And does that make someone feel like they made a mistake? You know, you know what I mean? Does that sound like something that maybe unique to us or do you think there's like a comparable type of thing with no no not at all and i'll tell you why i mean we're celebrating 20 years of ruby and rails this year for at least three quarters of that maybe more maybe 90 percent of that i was not the main at least in terms of turtles like not the main contributor i did not review everything we stood up a yeah. core team in 2005 i think or something like that at a time, and I still continue to have extremely strong opinions, sometimes again to my own detriment, about certain ergonomics, about how the framework works, um, yet I don't review everything. 
in fact, there have been times, I, I remember one where someone had merged something. I'm trying to remember what the hell it was, but I remember the timeline. Nine months after it was merged in, I was like, I, no, we, that can't go out in the release. Now, the Rails release <laughs> cycle is, is kind of long, probably too long, and I would have caught it earlier. If it were, but like, it got pulled out again, right? So if you set up a mm -hmm. system where you go like, hey, you or someone else that you designate is the executive producer on this project, they will make the final mm -hmm. call. Like if we're in dispute, that's the person who makes the call. Um, that person will delegate and assume that everyone who works on this team will make good decisions in the spirit of what we've already established, and then they will occasionally revert. And that's totally on board. That that's like that's the process, right? Yeah. Just like when we hire, we go like we can't just hire ten people and they're all going to be amazing. No one has those stats. We're going to hire. 10 people and hope that like seven of them are awesome and they work out. Three of them are not gonna work out. If you have a similar process around the open source project, for example, like, hey, you merge 100 pull requests, I'm gonna yank five. Wonderful, that's a great process. And I think it get, comes to this fear of what if someone felt bad, which is really at the root of a lot of terrible management. And I mean, I'm saying that with all love here because I'm, I'm a, perpetrator of the same thing. This is mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I so love the book uh, Radical Candor. I don't know if you've read that one. Um, it's funny. I actually hated the book, but the fundamental idea, Radical Candor versus Ruinous Empathy, was so strong that like you could have presented that to me in a tweet, and I would have been like, oh man, I'll pay full sticker price for that book just in a tweet. Just that I've referred to it so many times, I don't even care about what the rest of the book is. That fundamental framework illuminates so sharply what we do so often. We do ruinous empathy. We're so afraid of saying like, do you know what, in this instance, um, yeah, that wasn't right. That, that, was, that was wrong. And let me show you how. Let me show you why. This is how you learn. How could we have this delusion that someone is junior or even just more junior than us would make perfect decisions in our image all the time? Like what kind of, God-level uh, gift would they have if they were capable of doing that? That's completely unrealistic. What's very realistic is that you'll go like, hey, I trust you. Occasionally that trust involves also that I'm gonna revert some of your work. That just means that like, hey, this is an example for you to learn and maybe for me to communicate. It's not something for either of us to feel terrible about. But also, I mean, you can feel a little bad. That's okay. If you make a mistake, it's okay to feel like a little bad. If you make five mistakes in a row, it's okay to feel a lot of bad. And if you make whatever, seven or 10 in a row, it's okay to expect that you won't have a job, right? We have a ramp here of criticality where like, oh, you make a mistake, oh, fine. Just here, let me explain, da, da, da. There's always gonna be a little bit of a sting. You can never remove that sting. If that sting was not there, the learning wouldn't happen, all these other things. We are social beings who care deeply about how we present our image to others and so forth. There's no universe where you can somehow go like, hey, I'm gonna revert the decision you make, and also you're gonna feel like that was just totally fucking awesome, and I wish you did that like 10 times a day. I was just gonna ask, and maybe, maybe this has already kind of been answered, but sort of in the spirit of like the radical candor stuff, like what's like your best example of something that you just like weren't naturally good at? Like when you started at 37 Signals when the company was small that you've had to like work hard to get good at that you think was worth it or that you don't 
actively resent that you had to spend time improving at this when you just wanted to be working on the product. You know what I mean? I, I feel like this is an example of that for me anyways. And I don't know if you feel like it was something that came naturally to you or not, or if it took a lot of work, or if there's any other things like that, that people should anticipate needing to get good at, to be able to succeed at running a team, even if they're reluctant to do so, you know? Yes, I do think that that whole sphere of work, the interpersonal relations, particularly around, we'd say, poor performance. I don't know if that's always right. Sometimes it's not poor performance. It's like misaligned performance, even if that's sometimes even just a euphemism for poor performance, right? What, what do we call it? Redirecting feedback, I think, is the current euphemism uh, du jour. Redirecting feedback, giving someone redirecting feedback in a way where there's no uncertainty about what you're telling them. I've certainly thought at times that I gave someone redirecting feedback and I packaged it up in so many freaking euphemisms that they didn't know what the hell I was saying. And they could not take the lessons that I needed them to take away from it, away from it. And all of it because I was so wrapped up in like making sure no one is uncomfortable at any time. This is why the Radical Candor book and particularly the term ruinous empathy resonated so strongly with me that this idea, I'm trying to do something nice for you, but in trying to do so, I'm making it worse. Getting to that realization through painful experience was probably one of the key things. But then there are other things. One-on-ones, for example. First many years of 37 Signals, we did not do one-on-ones at all. I had one yearly conversation with a lot of employees for many years around stuff like career progression and, and so forth. And every other type of conversation was around the work, like centered around the work. It was not about like, how do we feel about each other and how do we feel about career progression and, and all these other things. And I still suck at that. <laughs> and, and some of these regimes and systems that we've set up are ways to deal with that. And some of it is also compromising in that, like for a very long time, we prided ourselves on having literally zero full-time managers at the company. Even at a company of like 45 people, we'd have zero full-time managers. Every manager would be a player coach. We now have two full-time managers. We have a wonderful COO, Elaine, and Dave, who's an engineering manager. And having just that bit of compromise, now that we're almost 80 people, has, has made things better. Like my old, older, more militant, more sort of strict way of doing it, I would just have tried to push through it. I would not have given it the flex that there is someone in the organization who actually enjoys one-on-ones and actually enjoys having these kinds of conversations and so forth. And like that that doesn't need to ruin the business or how we want to run it or have these systems and so forth. It just isn't like, if you look at most engineering organizations with, with 80 people, like they don't have two full-time managers. They have fucking a suite. They have multiple layers. That's just, yeah. that's how we, we look at it. But yeah, I, I really had to learn that lesson of ruinous empathy and I had to see it play out with people I made considerably worse off by trying to be too kind in ways that kept them from realizing a truth that could have helped them perhaps overcome the thing they needed to overcome at our company or move on to a company where they were a better fit. One of those euphemisms there again. Yeah. And, and do you know what? I wasted their time. And, and even more deeply than that, I wasted their lives. And even more deeply than that, like I undermined their sort of sense of self. Someone who's struggling in your organization 
You're not doing them any favors by keeping them in struggle mode. And like everyone knows, that's the thing. The person themselves know, maybe it's vague, like the, the knowing is vague because it's not directed because you weren't, I don't know if truthful, you weren't specific in what, what was lacking and that left it all vague, but like everyone can sense. Like we humans are quite good at picking up on when something is not quite right. And I think you do no one any justice or service in, in doing that, but it's incredibly hard. It's still incredibly hard. 20 years in, we don't have it perfectly figured out, but at least we have some helpful metrics. Yeah. One thing we've distilled down is this notion of hell yeah. So Derek Sivers has this wonderful essay that I've referred to perhaps more than any other essay on the internet inside our company, which is hell yeah or no. If you're not sure whether someone is right, whether something is right, the answer needs to be either hell yeah, or it's no. It's not yeah. And we apply that as a standard around hiring people twice. So we'll hire someone once, that's day one, that's when they start. And then at one year, we will hire them again if they are hell yeah. And if it's not hell yeah, then it's no. That's a very difficult one to actually live. It's very easy to say, it's very hard to live, but at least the approximation of it has helped us arrive at better decisions quicker, especially when they're difficult. Cool. I want to go to a slightly different direction. As our business has been more successful, I've noticed that there are a couple, I guess, downsides of success or challenges of success that I've been feeling. And one is this thing that feels a bit like a trap of doing things for the business. Like we have a certain number of customers and a certain amount of things that are working. Uh, and there's also a certain amount of opportunity. And so I feel this obligation to do things which are maybe less hell yeah for me. But it's like, yeah, but the business opportunity is so good. Or like the customers really want it. Or the employees think this would be fun. And that I find really challenging. And the other is that now that I have a thing that is mostly working, I have fear of loss that wasn't there before. Where it's like I'm also worried about doing certain ambitious things, certain risky things, because it's like, well, I like, I like how it is now. It'd be cool if there were, you know, more interesting things happening, but I'm a little bit scared of breaking the system that already works. And so I was curious if you had thoughts on fighting those challenges. I imagine like the, the Bezos investment early on maybe helped a little bit with that risk thing, that fear of risk. I was curious if that's true or not. That's a thing that like, we might consider for ourselves. Uh, just thoughts on that. Like what, what do you do when it's working, but it's still hard like this and there's traps there? Yeah. I know it's it's great and it's something we've wrestled with many times over the years. And it is also the moments I look back upon with the most uh, satisfaction when we've gotten it right. And if we start with the first one, which is like, hey, there's a bunch of opportunities here, but I don't really want to do them. We have a long public history of doing that. So in 2014, we had four major products. They were all growing. Um, even the smallest of them would have been a quite successful SaaS startup. It was Campfire, the chat tool, Backpack, our personal Notion-like manager, um, Highrise, which is the most important here, our CRM system, and then Basecamp. And what we realized at the time was they were all growing. Um, Basecamp was growing the quickest. We were around 40 people. We didn't want to be any bigger. How do, we, how do you resolve that, right? Um, shouldn't you just eat it? Shouldn't you just get bigger if you have the business opportunity that you can grow another three products? That feels almost like it's against capitalism not to exploit the opportunities you have to the fullest degree. Now, 
what helped us in that moment was to realize what a luxurious position we were in that we could even choose. Once you cross the luxury threshold that the opportunities are no longer around survival, but around sort of further satisfaction of your, I don't want to say ego, because that sounds like just so negative, but to some extent like, oh, I can grow a bigger thing, or you can couch it in customer friendly, we can help more customers, right? Like that's often how you can justify things to yourself of all sorts. Um, Once you realize that that's a luxury, I think I started looking at the bigger picture, which is, If I fill my days with projects and customers and products that I don't really want to work on, the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking for my exit. I am at some point going to run out of patience for that when I have the luxury to do so, when I can stop. Now, if you don't have that luxury, it's a different game. In the beginning, I... Uh, invested in a number of Danish startups and all of them are still trying to get to profitability. And I'm like, fuck your luxuries. Luxuries is, is <laughs> you get to enjoy your luxuries when you've earned them. When you've earned your luxury, that is, if you have a business that is profitable, it is profitable with a margin where you could tolerate, oh, there's undulations in the business here, we'd still be fine. My advice is to not start the clock. Do not start the clock where your day becomes filled with more things you'd rather not do that you take on out of your own volition in some game to get more of what you already have enough of. And this is the thing that is just so powerful to me in in stoicism, this idea that life is long enough if you spend it well. If you spend it poorly, it is way too short. And you have, at least, we choose to have 40 hours a week. Do you know what? The main luxury that I take out of the business at this point is that I try to spend the majority of those 40 hours on things I'd like to do. Things that teach me something, things that stimulate me, things that are interesting. Not 100% because that's not going to work. But if I get the choice, can I spend more of my time on things I really want to do or less of my time on things I really want to do? At this point, it's no longer really a choice. And this is where High Rise came in. High Rise was a huge business. Huge. Like, sizable chunk of the, the whole operation. A top 1% SaaS company in its own right. And choosing to stop selling that, even though it had product market fit, was the test of that principle. And I look back upon those sacrificed millions we could have made with such intense pride because that costs something. And this is what I love about principles. It is not the articulation of them in a vacuum. It's testing them when it's going to cost you something. That's when you really know whether these things are just principles or slogans. Slogans you can just throw out the window any day, right? Principles, you're willing to sacrifice for those. So this notion of making sure that we spend the short time we have, not just on earth, but I think of even shorter, like what's my work life? I've spent 20 years now, 22 almost, with 37 signals. Like I don't have another 30, right? So I'm probably halfway through. Tim Urban has this great technique where he has your entire life as weeks dotted in. And you'll see like, here's if you make it to 80 and like, oh, boom, 
My life in weeks. Beautiful. You're already halfway there, then you already know the answer. This is also what's so beautiful about principles you hold really dear. You always know the answer. It's always about rationalizations about why you aren't going with the answer you already know to be true. But this notion that like, you know what, again, I'm 43. I'm through most of my weeks on the chart. In my career, I'm probably also through most of the weeks on, on the chart. What am I going to spend the last parts on, right? It is almost sort of relates to this, at this point, trite but still true notion that no one on their deathbed wished they worked more. What I can guarantee you is no one certainly wished they worked more on things they didn't care to do and didn't have to do because <laughs> reasons, right? Like that's regret in the second potence here. Then the second point about injecting risk. I used to be really bad at this and I'm still kind of recovering from it. I'm really risk averse. I hate risk, which is such a, there's such a misconception. Literally, literally drives race cars, by the way, here. So let's remind everyone. Great example. Let's just do that detour real quick. I did the analysis of like how risky is it to drive a race car? And then I looked up the stats of how risky it is to drive a motorcycle. And I'm like, I'm doing the less risky thing by far. By far, it's less risky to drive a race car with four wheels and a roof than it is to pilot a Hayabusa <laughs> on the public roads. So even in that, there's this calculus, right? But when it comes to, to business, super risk averse. And, and this comes to like not getting out over our skis, making sure our expenses are kept within all these other things. At the same time, like you need to have a risk budget. If you take no risk, that's often the greatest risk of all. That sounds like a bad fortune cookie. But I think it's true that as a founder, you're the only one who can inject risk into the business. No one else that you hire will have anywhere near the same appetite for risk as you do. Because they'll be thinking about like, you know what, I got to keep my job. Like if this turns sour, I'm going to look bad. I might get the ax. If no one can give you the ax, and the worst thing that can happen is you take a terrible risk and like you blow up the company, you are the one who have to do the risks. So we've taken these risks over time. Again, maybe sort of trigger warning spicy take here, but we took a risk 2020 in April about resetting our company culture in a way that led to a third of the company leaving and so forth. Like huge <laughs> risk, in fact. Uh, at the time, and, and especially in the immediate aftermath, we talked with a ton of company owners and executives and so forth who were all like, holy shit, like I would love to do that. I would never take the risk. That risk panned out. It could have not, right? Which is why it's a real test of your of your values and so forth. It panned out. We ended up in a far better place. And that was a hugely risky moment. And I look back upon that and I, that's one of the top five best decisions we've made in 24 years in business. Just as taking the decision to become base camp was a wonderful decision to, to do for that time. Then taking the risk of, of taking on Gmail when we finally decided, all right, let's do another product. We're like, oh yeah, who should we, who should we try to compete with? Let's try to compete with Gmail, who literally gives their shit away for free by introducing a new email service that costs money. Um, and then we gamble it all against Apple on a fight against the App Store, right? So that kind of risk can only come from the founders, can only come from owner-operators. So therefore, regardless of how you think about it, you must think of like, if no one else takes any risk, we're running a great risk. Again, 
doesn't mean risking your company constantly willy-nilly on things left and right. I don't like to do that. I like to make sure there's tons of margin in the risks that we take. And if we do take risks with not a lot of margin, um, which some of those examples would, would count as, they damn well better count. Did you notice a meaningful increase in your risk tolerance when you did sell a bit of equity? Sort of like take some money off the table and assure that you've like sort of locked in that win? Yes. And this is one of the reasons why it's really informed my advice to entrepreneurs ever since. When we sold secondaries to Jeff Bezos in 2005 or six, six, I think, it was a minority stake that was, it was sort of a luxury sale. Like it was a rare opportunity because most times you don't get to sell something of your company to investors and give them no say, power, or influence on how you operate that business afterwards. Yet that was the deal we did. But what I learned through that was the vast majority of the financial rewards of being successful in business happens from zero to, let's say, a million. Once you have $1 million clean, scot-free on your bank account for you to use as you see fit, that, to me, was the transformational change of money. Like, once you no longer need to worry about rent or groceries or dinners, or anything else like that. That's like you're going from, from one to zero in that game. And it takes so much of sort of the anxiety about what I could lose out of the game. Because before we did that deal, if 37 Signals had gone belly up like right after, we would have essentially had nothing. I'd have to go straight back to work for someone else. And I'd already realized by then how much I disliked that notion. So it would have had like real impact on my freedom, my creativity, my options, my everything, right? Now, making a million dollars scot-free is hard, but it's not even in the same universe of odds or risks as like coming up with a unicorn startup or anything else like that. There are a lot of business ideas where you can get to whatever your number is. For me, it was a million dollars. I don't know, nice round number. For some people, it's gonna be, I don't know, 500 grand. Or for some people, maybe it's 10 million. Whatever it is, right? It happens really early on the curve. And I can tell you that because like, I kept going on the curve. And like, it didn't change that much. And again, this is one of the things people, they never believe it when I say it. I wrote a whole thing up um, back in 15 called The Day I Became a Millionaire kind of detailing all this stuff. And again, I recognized all the arguments for why people will say it's absolutely bullshit, that like, hey, wealth isn't whatever. Easy for you to say you're rich, totally. Recognize all of that. And I'm not saying the opposite. What I'm saying is that like, if you look at it on a pie chart of like utility, almost all of it is in the first jump. And the first jump is achievable on completely different odd sets. So when we had that from Jeff, right, there was, more than a million dollars, now in my bank account, it was taxes were paid, scot-free, whatever. We went like, well, no fucking way we're even gonna entertain talking to VCs who wanna give us a lot of money or whatever. Before that, I, I'd be lying if I wasn't saying like, we already had very strong anti-investor sentiments, both Jason and I haven't been through the dot-com boom and bust. But when like your bank account literally either says zero or somewhere an approximation of zero, and someone comes to you and talks about like, $20 million, like, holy shit, you need to be strong in a way that like most humans are not. And I did not trust myself to be that strong. And I think the same thing was true for Jason. So being able to just take that little bit off the table gave us the strength to then never have to talk about that ever again. 
this is interesting. This is kind of making me doubt it a little bit for my this move for myself slightly because I'm past that milestone now, but I still have it in my head that like, oh, well, if I had a bit more, if that number were just a bit higher, then I would feel that comfort with like taking these risks. But the fact like it's making me doubt that now and thinking well, it's a little bit more like an intrinsic like, oh, no, I'm just like scared of this thing, maybe irrationally or something like there's not going to be a number where that fear will go away. I guarantee you that's true. And the reason I know this is because people have studied this. So there's a wonderful study where they asked people who had a net worth of 200,000 and they'd like, what would make you secure in your life? And they'd say 400. Then they'd ask someone who had half a million, what would make you secure? 1 million. Then they'd ask someone with 1 million, what's the answer? 2 million. And 2 million, 5 million. I had it for me personally, a fair bit up, and then I finally let go of it. But it took a long time. And it was only in retrospect I could look back upon the progression and realize how little my life had changed in all those interims, that all those markers I thought like, oh, if I get to that point, then that it was bullshit. Yeah. It's funny because it's less like my life changing that I think about. Like I actually don't expect my life to change that much as those numbers go up. It's almost more like it's fear. What is it? It's like fear of the hmm. I guess it's the fear of the income going away. No, I, I'm I'm not sure what it is. Like I, I sort of recognize like if my if the amount of money I had doubled, I don't think I would do much differently. Like I'm living like this yes. pretty incredible life already, and like I could make it more luxurious technically, but not really in any reasonable way. That's exactly the point. That is exactly the point. And I think also what you're looking for, the answer is like that's human nature. That's literally how we're programmed. Like, okay, you had like a stash yeah. of berries, but if your yeah. stash of berries was a little bigger, you could make it two winners instead of one or whatever. Like we're just hardcore programmed to strive for more. And it takes actually diligent deprogramming to get out of that. And this is one of the reasons why I'm such a big booster of stoicism, because for me, that was learning that body of ancient wisdom was one of the main pathways where I could sort of come to terms with these things that like, all right, it's intrinsic in me. I have to apply mm. philosophy, applied philosophy, like applied physics, applied philosophy to get out of that state. Mm. And then once I was out of the state, I, I can realize it now. Like I've done a lot of fun, interesting, and occasionally very expensive things in my life. There's still nothing that can compete in terms of flow with me sitting down in front of a juicy programming problem and nailing it. Like the two months I just spent on Maersk at the beginning of the year were as enjoyable as anything I've ever done in terms of experiences. Like, and I like to drive race cars. Those are not cheap. That's fun. And I'm about to go to Lamar for the 10th time. It's a wonderful experience. It's very expensive. If I had to choose, I'd take the like, make another Maersk thing. Absolutely. Any day of the week, it wouldn't even be close. It would not even be close. And I think that's true for a lot of people that the things they really derive peak joy from, their states and moments of flow. And those things do not come from wealth. Yeah, that resonates a lot. As you were talking, I sort of got a handle on the thing. It's like it's the fear of losing sort of like the lifestyle or the comfort or the, the things I have. It's like it's really fun to live this way and like not care about the price of dinner or like be able yes. to do that crazy expensive vacation. And so I think that that's the sort of core of the fear there is like it's not just that I've made it here. That's good. I want to maintain my lifestyle here, I guess. But I also think about the fact that I agree with you. Like the things I care most about are like time with my family. 
yes. and like times with good friends. And when I was a programmer making like 70K or 60K, like that was also like a good life. There's plenty of money. I was happy. I didn't feel bad about my life. I loved hanging with people, my friends and my family. And it was, it was, life was good. This point, the Coco Chanel quote that the best things in life are free. The second best things are very expensive. The key part of that quote is that the best things in life are free. And at least for me, I mean, I've had it in terms of creativity through work, but then having kids was sort of just the, oh my God, Jesus Christ, how self-evident does it appear now that the well-being of my kids are just like so much above anything else that it's, it's, it's almost pathetic what else is in there in that universe because it's so, the distance is so large, right? And I think you'd get it from, from almost anyone you'd ask, like, you could ask a billionaire, what would you give up for, for your kid? And they'd ask anything in a second, all of it, without a shred, a moment of hesitation, gives you some idea of that distance. Again, as always, got to be careful with sort of the real challenges that people have when you don't have enough money. This is why my focus is all about that early jump, the early stage, right? Like if you are actually worrying about like paying rent and groceries and whatever, life is difficult in ways that are uncomfortable. And I lived that life too, growing up in, in, in Denmark. So I know what that is. And I know the stresses that inject. But as you say, as soon as you cross that threshold, and actually most people already have, right? Now, can they maintain it, as you say? That's perhaps more up for... I mean, if you, if you have a job and you're making 70,000, right? Like the famous study basically saying 70,000 is the threshold for happiness. After that, like additional money is, is not materially lifting your, your happiness score or whatever. I think it's quite apt. Maybe numbers probably a little higher now, inflation, da, 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 whatever it is. But certainly if you've crossed the threshold as an entrepreneur of like, all right, I'm worth a million dollars, let's say that, right? You're so far out of it. Like you're already in the top 0.0001% of world population wealth. If you take it on a historic basis, like you have access to more pleasurable things, uh, material goods and advantages than kings of like very recently. You're like, you're literally living the pinnacle of life as it's ever existed on earth, right? <laughs> and you're like, but, but I'd like a little more. Can I, know, I have a little more, but if I had twice please? as much. <laughs> <laughs> I think Stoicism is also a really great counter to that. I mean, literally, you have the span of the Stoic philosophers from, like, slave, emperor of Rome, right? Like, that they can share sunlight on these ideas about your attachment to... And this is not just Stoicism. Uh, Buddhism, um, life is suffering and, uh, and desire is sort of the root of all evil and all these other things. Like, there's plenty of truths that you can find from all the world religions and other sources of long-run wisdom that goes to this, but still, we are programmed. You gotta intentionally deprogram when it comes to these questions. And even when you do, it's not like you can just deprogram and you're done, right? So this is, <laughs> I mean, I remember when I, I'm not a religious person, but I was, as I was growing up, I'd hear about people like Bible study. And it's like, didn't they read the book? Like, why do you need to read it more than once? And then I, I became an adult <laughs> and I realized the hard part is not like reading and conceptually understanding the lesson, it is living the lesson and invoking it when it counts. That is actually very difficult. You spend a lifetime trying to perfect that. So again, on the, on the stoic level, I, I read the cappuccino version, the manual by Epictetus. You can read it in like 50 minutes, twice a year. Because it goes to so many of these questions we've been talking about. They're just like, oh yeah, 
I needed that reminder right now because otherwise I will relapse into my human DNA programmed ways of thinking. Cool, man. Well, I think maybe that's a good place to wrap it. We've been chatting for quite a while now, but it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time to jump on and riff on this stuff with us. This was great. And also I back at you. I mean, I do a lot of podcast stuff, but not so often with other business owners. And I think there's a different discussion you have when that's the sort of sphere and mental image that you're in. Like when you have skin in the game, yeah. these topics, they matter in a different way than if you're creating content. Yeah. Cool. That's great to hear. Awesome, man. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And hope to see you in uh, Amsterdam in October. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, guys. See Talk to you later. All right. Bye.